Hi, good uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, good morning, if you're uh, calling in from the West Coast. Uh, welcome to today's August uh, Tosca 3030. Title of Tosca 3030 is New Tosca Second Anniversary Roundup. Uh, and leave leave the slide with the um, with the phone in so people don't in. Uh, and the reason why we called it that is because last this June. Uh, was actually the second anniversary of the new Tosca. Um, next slide. So I'm Herbert Stryker. I've spoken at a, a number of these. Next slide. And I'm joined here by my colleague, uh, Greg Clark, who's an associate in our chemical control group. Uh, Greg has also spoken at a few of these. Next slide. So as I indicated, June is the month, seems to be the month for Tosca developments. You know, as you, as you know, the, the act it was amended on June 22, 2016. Uh, the first anniversary was in June 2017, and we've now passed the second anniversary in June 2018. So what happened at the first anniversary? Well, EPA issued uh, four major rules, uh, the, the three framework rules for task to inventory reset. That's in litigation before the Ninth Circuit. The prioritization framework rule which is in litigation before the Ninth Circuit as well. Um, and, uh, and by the way, um, those those cases have been briefed by both the petitioners, the environmental groups, as well as by EPA, waiting, and uh, waiting for the interveners' briefs in the polarization framework and risk evaluation framework rule litigation in the Ninth Circuit. There was also a draft, quote, framework rule for the new chemicals program uh, that's in litigation before the Second Circuit. And I can now add that there's actually been a lawsuit filed recently in the Second Circuit uh, challenging EPA's uh, uh, failure, quote, failure to respond to a Freedom of Information Act request in connection with the scientific transparency rule. So lots of litigation. Yep. So new act, lots of litigation, uh, pretty much everything EPA did the first year. And at uh, Acting Administrator John Wheeler's confirmation hearing this month, um, Tom Carpenter um, of Delaware remarked there's probably no aspect of EPA's implementation of TOSCA that will not be litigated. Well, we'll have to see, but certainly that held true for the first year. Next slide. So how are year two activities doing? Well, um, I think the uh, it's becoming fairly clear to me at least that uh, Congress and the public are receiving a distorted message about EPA's implementation of the new TOSCA. So, for example, and a very, very notable example, uh, last month, six Democratic senators wrote a letter to Acting Administrator Wheeler expressing concern about reports that EPA is, quote, weakening, end quote, its approach to reviewing new chemicals under the amended TOSCA. Now, if anyone on this call has been involved in filing a, a PMN, pre-manufacturing notice, or low-volume exemption, or anything with EPA and a new chemicals program, I think it's fairly clear to the people who have been doing this that there's been anything but a, quote, weakening of the new chemical program. But that seems to be what's in the press. That seems to be uh, what at least six Democratic senators uh, that have been heavily involved in TOSCA reform seem to believe, and uh, we feel that that's a distorted view uh, that Congress and the public are receiving about what's actually going on. We consider those to be false facts. 
So what are the true facts? Well, before the TOSC amendments, EPA regulated about 10% of PMN chemicals. After the uh, Lautenberg uh, Chemical Safety Act amendment, the number of regulated chemicals is now closer to roughly 90%. You may note that uh, last week, uh, a series of 188 significant new use rules uh, were published by EPA. Uh, still a fair number of chemicals uh, that are pending uh, regulation, uh, and it, it seems to be, by and large, other than polymers, and, and that said, only innocuous polymers, and biochemicals, many, many types of chemistry are being regulated under the new TOSCA. That is something a far cry from what I would call a weakening of the new chemicals program. Now, part of the problem, to be fair, I think does stem from the need for industry to provide more comprehensive PMN submissions. I think it's fairly clear to me that although prior to the Lautenberg Amendments, I think the easiest way, to, easiest country to go to market uh, that has a pre-manufacture, pre-importation uh, uh, pre, uh, 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 notice requirement was the U.S. So usually you went to market in the U.S. first, and then uh, you developed the data that was necessary to go to market in Europe or in Asia or the Asia-Pacific Rim. I think the dynamics now totally changed. I think probably the U.S. is probably the toughest place uh, to go to market for a new chemical. Next slide. Now, why is that? Well, what are the problems? And we, you know, we've identified, at least from our experience, you know, a number of problems with the way we feel that EPA is conducting reviews of, of PMNs or low volume exemptions. Uh, others may have other different experiences. At least the things that we've noted, and we do a fair number of PMNs for companies. Uh, here are the problems we see. We see that there's inconsistent decision-making by the agency on closely related chemicals uh, that could easily have been consolidated in a single PMN, and uh, for whatever reason, they're filed in separate PMNs, and there's a different regulatory outcome. That should not happen. Uh, second, we see uh, EPA now raising concerns in some cases about uh, degradation of polymers. Uh, and, in fact, somewhat improbable degradation of polymers uh, based on the physical properties of polymers. We think that's kind of a new thing. We've never seen that before. So that's kind of a new thing that they're doing. Uh, we've seen examples where uh, studies have been submitted on the actual test up uh, the actual PMN substance itself. And even in the face of real data on the actual substance, EPA still insists on relying on surrogate data, on analog data. Uh, we've seen um, uh, EPA issuing consent orders, you know, largely to reinforce uh, the OSHA rules with respect to hazard communication, with respect to uh, warnings, with respect to safety data sheet requirements. These are mandated under OSHA rules anyway. And to have a separate standalone regulation under TOSCA to delay companies' ability to go to market with new, innovative, and important technology, uh, to put a stigma on new and innovative technology that they are somehow regulated specifically under TOSCA, seems to me us to be unwarranted. Uh, and, and, and even in the case where companies agree that regulation makes sense, there's been very, very long um, uh, processing times for consent orders. So, so far from weakening uh, uh, the new chemical program, 
as indicated by the six senators, we would say that the chemical program is in a state of dysfunction. Uh, next slide, please. And I'll now turn this over to my colleague, uh, Greg Clark. Uh, we're, the rest of this session, we're going to talk about a number of different guidance documents and rules that EPA issued in uh, June 2018 to mark the uh, second anniversary of the uh, new TOSCA. Greg? Thank you, Herb. As Herb mentioned, EPA released the, uh, a number of guidance documents in June of this year. Uh, perhaps chief among these was the points to consider for new chemical notifications uh, document. Uh, a draft of this was released in November of last year for public comment. Um, and this is part of EPA's outreach based on changes to the new chemicals program under the Lautenberg Act, uh, trying to provide uh, more guidance for submitters and also some more transparency into their review process. Uh, notably, though, this is, of course, a guidance document, so it's non-binding on the agency. It doesn't create any additional <laughs> rights for submitters. But it could still be challenged in the Second Circuit. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Next slide, please. Uh, this is an, a flowchart here with an overview of the review process. There's little new information, but uh, it's good to understand the flow if you're a submitter um, because this information is uh, not going to otherwise be conveyed to you. EPA is not going to tell you when it passes through each of these steps. Uh, so it's just good to have an understanding of the process here, and it really does illustrate when you dive into the details of the points to consider document uh, where each of these different types of reviews um, of data or models uh, comes into play. You, want to, you don't want to go through this? Okay. Uh, here we have some of the, the key um, models, software modules as well that EPA um, has identified as being used in the new chemicals review. Uh, those that are bolded are used on practically all PMNs. The others will come into play uh, depending on what's included in the submission, depending on the nature of the new chemical substance. Uh, the, the AIM method is used to ID chemical analogs uh, where toxicity information is incomplete for the new chemical substance. Uh, structural alerts, that has to do with functional groups that have toxicity concerns, for example, esters or phenols. Uh, ChemSphere is a major, um, a major factor in EPA's reviews. It relates to exposures and environmental releases. Uh, that information then plays into EFAST, which has to do with uh, the resulting exposures to the general population, to the environment, to consumers uh, from those uh, environmental releases modeled by ChemSphere. Uh, ECOSAR estimates uh, aquatic toxicity. Um, that's going to fill the gaps when the three relevant aquatic organism classes aren't covered by submitted data on the new chemical substance. So those would be algae, aquatic invertebrates, and fish. Uh, EpiSuite, BioWIM, that's biodegradation. Uh, BCF, BAF, that's bioconcentration factor and bioaccumulation factor uh, estimations. That's the, the B prong of PBT. One that's not listed here is the PVT profiler, which EPA removed from its website. Uh, it's still possible to perform a PVT profiler analysis if you're familiar of which uh, portions of the other platforms play into that PVT determination. Uh, if you really look into the, the points to consider document, 
uh, it's clear that when you're talking about PVT, uh, you can have these clear outcomes based on where uh, where those numbers fall out. But when you get to human health, then it's uh, more much more of a qualitative analysis, uh, which may be one reason why P, uh, EPA took that PVT profiler down. Uh, next slide, please. So one goal of the points considered document was to uh, identify where submitters can provide more information, more robust submissions to ease the review. Um, a few of these here on this slide are areas that in the years leading up to Lautenberg, we were seeing uh, increased emphasis from EPA in their reviews of new chemical substances. So um, ecotoxicity releases to water, um, inhalation exposures. So now that we're in the Lautenberg era, EPA is um, really focusing on these, and if you don't provide the data, they're going to use some very conservative um, models to, to, to assess whether there's a risk. Um, if there's no particle size or inhalation exposure information provided where you have a substance that's um, manufactured or processed in a, a dust form or it's used in a form where you might have a spray application, uh, EPA stated that they'll use a default of up to 5 milligrams per cubic meter uh, restable or 15 milligrams per cubic meter uh, total particulates based on an OSHA particulates not otherwise regulated uh, PEL limiting model. Uh, for water solubility and octanol uh, water partition coefficient, that's information that can be obtained for most chemicals fairly readily and should be included in most PMNs. Uh, that's information that EPA will use in terms of assessing uh, risk to the environment. Again, ionization or dissociation in water for acids, bases, organic salts, that relates to uh, concerns for the aquatic environment. Uh, a final point here, if you have a substance that's going to be manufactured in a production volume that's greater than 100,000 kilograms per year, or if the substance turns out to be uh, rated 2 for persistence and 2 for bioaccumulation, EPA is automatically going to model uh, the risks for uh, non-occupational general population exposures, consumer exposures, and environmental exposures uh, via ambient air, drinking water, uh, dietary intake, for example, from fish. So that's something to be aware of when you have a substance that's going to be manufactured in one of these very high volumes or where the chemical substance falls into that P2B2 classification. There are significant limitations, however, the points to consider document. I mean, what EPA is doing here is providing a list of essentially information that it wants to have in its review. But there are other issues with the chemical review process that providing more information is simply just not going to address. Um, EPA uses these conservative models, which have some, some assumptions that we think are, are problematic. Uh, there also are limited applicability domains for each of those different platforms and software modules. Um, following along those lines, EPA, in the points to consider, doesn't provide criteria where particular substances or classes of substances should not be considered under those models or would fall outside those limited applicability domains. Um, it really becomes difficult to know with this giant list of different models that EPA is using which would apply to your substance when you should uh, move out of that if you're an individual PMN submitter, which is why um, you know those who are familiar with the process have a significant advantage in terms of their familiarity and knowing when the models make sense and when they don't for a particular substance. Um, also to keep in mind, I mean, a submitter can 
address their own conditions of use via the PMN. They can provide more information on the controls that they have in place that they're manufacturing, uh, more information on what their uh, downstream users are doing. Uh, but EPA is obligated to review reasonably foreseen um, additional uses as well. So you may end up in that case with a 5E consent order that binds you to what you said in the PMN uh, in terms of your release or exposure controls. Um, so even though your risk, uh, even though your activity doesn't present any particular risk, you're still going to get stuck in the 5E consent order loop. And that's not going to be fixed um, no matter how much information you provide in the points to consider document. Um, another item that we found, I think, particularly um, problematic in the points to consider document is this assumption that EPA states that in the engineering report, they'll assume that there's no PPE. Um, that's contrary to whatever might be in the PMN, and we think it's also contrary to uh, just common sense. There are, as uh, Herb mentioned, obligations under OSHA's requirements for uh, protecting workers, for providing information on risk in the workplace, and Using jumping from a assumption of no PPE to determining whether a substance presents a risk uh, just isn't logical. Uh, and finally, as Herb also mentioned, if you turn back to the, uh, if you looked back at the uh, review process, ultimately that doesn't tell you or describe in any detail the delays that you ultimately get into once you get into the consent order process. Uh, the submitter and uh, the EPA reviewers could be in agreement of what needs to go into a consent order, but ultimately getting that through agency management level approval uh, can cause significant yeah. unnecessary delays. Right. Thank you, Greg. So there were a couple of questions, and I'm, usually I don't take questions, but uh, so someone, and I thank them, did mention and pointed out that the actual the inventory reset litigation is actually in the D.C. Circuit, not the Ninth Circuit. And I'm actually glad the D.C. Circuit's getting a crack at this because uh, I didn't want them to feel out of the loop. Uh, I suspect that all the circuits will see a Tosca litigation case at some point other than the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Next slide. Uh, so what EPA also issued some guidance documents on uh, release of confidential business information uh, to three uh, types of – three categories of individuals – uh, governments, uh, state governments, uh, as well as uh, uh, medical and environmental professionals, as well as uh, medical professionals in an emergency situation. And they set out, the guide document set out, sets out a process uh, for how uh, these entities could obtain this information. And I've given you a link, uh, and uh, this, these slides are up on the website. Uh, so you can read this at your leisure. Just to point out that, you know, there are procedures in place now uh, for uh, confidential, your confidential business information to be released to governmental, state governmental en entities or emergency providers, uh, provided that they have uh, in place uh, suitable protections for the CBI that are comparable to what EPA provides. Next slide. Uh, more on CBI, EPA issued, uh, uh, looks like it was probably a rule, um, uh, for uh, unique identifiers. Uh, under the new TOSCA, EPA is to assign a unique identifier number uh, to, uh, to a substance where the specific chemical identity has been claimed confidential. And the number is basically the year in which the uh, uh, CBI claim was first asserted 
and then a sequential number after that. So it follows the format that I've indicated on the slide. Uh, now, this unique number will, uh, will be applied to um, any document uh, where that substance is discussed, uh, where the specific chemical identity is not disclosed. Uh, and uh, it also will show up on the annual list of uh, uh, basically the confidential inventory. So under the new version of the confidential inventory, uh, rather than having a session numbers, uh, there'll be a UUID, a UID number, a unique um, identifier uh, that's applied to that that uh, chemical, the mass chemical name that appears on the confidential inventory. So the session number is basically done away with. There's a Federal Register notice, uh, which provided a notice of opportunity of the, uh, for the policy. Next slide. Uh, and I think what's somewhat interesting, and uh, I did want to talk a little bit about this, there's a lot of discussion in the preamble uh, to this uh, notice of uh, availability about when, when a UUID number would be provided in related documents. So if you have, for example, Company A claim the confidentiality of their uh, uh, chemical, specific chemical identity, uh, there'll be the mass name and the UUID number associated with that entry. If Company B, uh, let's say, also has a submission involving that same chemical, and they've also claimed the specific chemical identity as confidential, then that same UID number will appear in that second company's document. All right? And so, actually, if you sort of think about it, uh, now, that, you know, by cross-checking documents, they'll know that someone else, and perhaps whom, uh, submitted uh, a filing with respect to the same chemical. I think more importantly, and there's a lot of discussion in the uh, preamble to this notice of availability, is the case where uh, you have a substance where the specific chemical identity has been, uh, uh, has been claimed confidential by, let's say, first submitter. Uh, there's a second document uh, where the submitter did not claim the identity as confidential. And the question is, should the UID number uh, be put into that second document? And the answer from EPA was no, because then that would disclose the specific chemical identity associated with that UID number. Now, however, there's a fairly extensive discussion and fairly extensive comments uh, in uh, around that question. And I would suggest uh, that that's part of, uh, I think, of underlying philosophy, which underlies uh, the D.C. Circuit case, uh, which is on the inventory reset litigation, which really focuses on the question about CBI and when CBI has to be asserted in order, and whether you, uh, a second party who does not assert uh, a claim uh, for confidentiality to the same chemical basically destroys all CBI associated with that chemical. And there is an underlying philosophy that is at issue in the D.C. Circuit case uh, brought by the petitioners, environmental groups, which basically the thinking or the uh, thinking that another party can defeat your CBI claim. Uh, that's the heart of that case. Or you could defeat your own CBI claim uh, by claiming uh, uh, the identity confidential, let's say, in a PMN or a notice of commencement, but when you're submitting, let's say, a Section 80 filing, not claiming the identity is confidential, which is commonly the case, uh, that you could defeat your own claim by future by uh, future submissions 
or a second party, another party, could defeat your claim uh, by disclosing the uh, specific chemical identity of the substance. That's the heart of the D.C. Circuit case. That's the heart of the whole preambular discussion around this point. And I would, for people who are doing litigation watching, to make sure that every circuit other than the Federal Circuit gets a crack at this, I would uh, I would monitor this. Next slide. Uh, EPA issued a guidance document on mass names, mass chemical names, um, and I've given you a link. Uh, we did look uh, as to whether the rules for masking the specific chemical identity that EPA has come up with are any different uh, from what is used in Canada. Because uh, Canada has for a long time had a very comprehensive rules in place for masking the specific chemical identity of substances that are notified under SEPA, Canadian Environmental Protection Act. And I think the good news, perhaps good news, is the rules are basically the same. And so you should be able to get away with the same mass chemical name in your U.S. filing and your Canadian filing. But I ask you the question, is that a good idea? Uh, you know, as you know, in the U.S. now, you can only uh, get protection uh, for the specific chemical identity for 10 years unless you request a renewal, which you may not be given. Uh, Canada, at the moment, doesn't seem to have a limitation. Uh, and so it's possible uh, that uh, your mass name that you use in the U.S. and Canada would become public, the actual identity in the U.S., and then people in Canada can figure out what you've submitted in Canada as well. So be mindful of that. Uh, I have two minutes left, uh, actually three minutes left, uh, and somebody asked a very interesting question, which I want to get to. They said, are there any recommendations to enhance PMNs to make them more comprehensive? Well, I would suggest that you really think about the chemistry that you're trying to clear with EPA. In the past, when 10% of the PMNs were regulated, it kind of made sense to just submit something, see what happens, and then deal with the problem. Here, if 90% of the chemicals are going to be regulated, you really have got to, unless you have infinite time to go to market, you really have got to sort of think about how you're going to construct the PMN to really give you a good chance of uh, having uh, the PMN approved without going to regulation. And so I would think hard about your chemistry. I would certainly do use the various tools that uh, Greg talked about, particularly the QSART toolbox, try to figure out where the alerts are, the structural alerts uh, that EPA may uh, pick up on. Uh, if there are questions uh, about mutagenicity uh, based on structural alerts or other endpoints of concern, uh, pull together whatever analog data you, can, you have to try to make the case in the PMN uh, that uh, that these uh, these issues are not a concern. Uh, certainly, uh, spend more time uh, than people have in the past on the exposure questions. If you have a chemical that has any uh, alert for a, uh, an endpoint of concern, uh, spend time with your potential customers uh, to sort of provide good detailed information on how they would handle the chemical. Uh, and then I think finally, you know, think hard about this question about uh, uh, reasonably foreseeable conditions of use or other uses of your chemical. Now, it's it's not the case that every chemical is, is used for every purpose. However, you know, uh, certain classes of chemicals are known to have a, a, a particular subset of different uses. 
You know, if that's the case for your chemistry, then you should spend time in the EPA, uh, in the PMN, sorry, addressing uh, those reasonably foreseeable uh, other uses of your chemical. Uh, but be mindful that not every chemical has uh, more than one use. For example, specialty polymers usually have only a single use. I saw something in the press yesterday where somebody said, well, EPA, you know, has now departed <coughs> from its long, you know, its statutory requirement to consider uh, consider uh, reasonably foreseeable conditions of use because it indicated in a in a justification drop document for making a no unreasonable risk finding uh, that it could not identify any other uh, uh, reasonably foreseeable uses. And then there was a, a big to do, uh, to do about that in the press about how that demonstrates that EPA is acting unlawfully and not following its statutory mandate. The hard answer is, if you look at that chemistry, particularly as a polymer, very specific type of chemistry, there probably is no other use than the use, particular use, that that polymer was designed to be, to hand to be uh, used for. And so, not every chemical has multiple uses. Uh, however, some chemicals are known, some chem class of chemistry are known to have different uses. If your PMN evolves a class of chemistry that's known to have uh, different kinds of uses, then you need to deal with those in the PMN. Next slide. Uh, I never go over. I have gone over. I apologize. We do have 109 people that showed up for August, which is terrific, and nobody has left because we're a few minutes over. Uh, we have our next uh, OSHA 3030 uh, on August 22nd, uh, just before Labor Day. Uh, next uh, TOSCA 3030 is on September 12th. And we're still waiting for the next FIFRA 3030. Next slide. Uh, next slide. So I'm Herbert Stryker, joined here by my colleague, uh, uh, Greg Clark, and we look forward to uh, visiting with you again for 30 minutes, although today it was, looks like uh, 32 minutes uh, <laughs> next month. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.